The God of Atheists, Chapter 70, Alter, His Mother, and the Criticism of Women. Alter's mother, Samantha, was, well, primitive might be the best word. She was very loyal, very devoted, very hard-working, but would only be able to recognize an abstraction if it left muddy tracks on her linoleum. She was very blunt and almost immovable in her opinions. In fact, the word opinions was quite foreign to her rather dictatorial mindset. It was somewhere between multicultural and <gasps> relative. When he took the bus to his mother's house to tell her about Joanne's decision, Alda was quite terrified. He felt it was a terrible failure. He was most shocked at her response. Good riddance, said Samantha, her jaw muscles working. What? Oh, you modern men. A PhD in, what, ethics? Women? She snapped her fingers. Kindergarten. She... I, I, I couldn't understand what it was about. Because you tried this equality thing. This... What? She wrapped a cigarette on the kitchen table. There were no ashtrays. She lit up and continued, fashioning one out of the silver foil. Tell me this. Is your house kept clean? Clean? Like... Hygienic? Clean? Clean! Clean like you grew up with! No, it's not like this. She, she's not into that. So who cleans? I, I used to. Now we, we get a maid. A maid! His mother barked a laugh. Right. That makes sense. You're horny. You ring a call girl, too? His mother's crudeness continued to shock him. In fact, his rank platonism might have been a reaction to his mother's rank earthiness. Tell me this. Do you come home to a cooked meal at night? No, jo Joanne doesn't like to cook. We take turns. Your father came home and put his feet up for half an hour while I cooked. I was so quiet, sometimes he napped. Well, that, that, that's... She held up a hand. Who takes care of the finances? I do, said Alder, and a sudden tendril of anger curled up from his belly. Drives dear Stephen around? Sh sh shared. Th that, that's shared, he said. Pays the bills? Well, she does. Through the internet, though, he thought suddenly. I don't mean licks the damn stamp, snapped his mother. I mean puts the money into the account. She, she doesn't work. You know that. Doesn't work, she echoed. She smoked rapidly, barely inhaling before expelling smoke like a tiny, pollinated sneeze. Of course she doesn't work. I mean, my God, these modern women have it made. They don't have to have jobs if they don't want to. They don't clean. They don't cook. They don't run the household, which is no small feat. Of course your marriage failed, but not at the end. It failed all the way through. Mom, you, you can't get women like you anymore. She smiled tightly. Well, that's the first compliment I've gotten from you since you were ten. Modern men are weak, Alder. Modern women need husbands, as women always have, but you're also grateful you treat them like princesses, so of course they treat you like dirt. He paused. It's not as simple as when she wagged a finger... Laziness, Alder. The word is laziness. You work, she sits around and does... Pal, I don't know what she does all day. No work. One kid in school. One! And then you come home and have to cook for her? What's the matter with you? Didn't I teach you anything? Alder blinked. The word laziness had never really occurred to him. It seemed far too simple, like evil. Too reductionist. He frowned. There was no way to explain any of that to his mother. It, 
It was like screwing up the calculations of a sailor bound for home by introducing quantum mechanics. So now, continued Samantha, never Sam, she liked being a woman, thank you very much. Now you are truly damned, in the way only a modern man can be. And so am I. She's going to hit you for all you've got, half of everything, plus alimony, plus child support, and she's never going to do a stitch of work again. No, she, she, she's not like that. She smiled sweetly and stubbed out her cigarette. Lazy people are too lazy to change, dear. And that's it for you as a father. Or a boyfriend. What? Why? Well, now she comes with an income. You come with an expense. Can you really afford to support two households on your salary? Smart you may be, rich you are not. You won't be able to have any more children. They're expensive. We women have our clocks, but men have their weak spots as well. You'll get Stephen half the time, but pay for all of his costs. You'll spend the next decade paying for a family you're not even part of anymore. She grimmed humorlessly. Welcome to the liberated world of the modern man. So, what, what are we supposed to do? Never marry because it's risky? Hell no, get a prenup. Women want to be independent? Let them put it in writing. You can't get a prenup and have a woman stay home. Why not? That way, she's got to make it work. It's too easy to get out these days. I had my bags packed with your father two, no, three times. But it was much harder back then. Courts were more difficult. Neighbors, Lord, vicious. We all tore down women who ran off. So when it was our turn, but I was glad I stayed. Marriage is hard. Does he get a lunch at least? Who? Stephen? Alder shook his head. He he buys his lunch. She snorted. (laughs) Told you she was going to be lazy. Laziness for women is like drinking for men. Just as bad. Just as wrong. (sighs) exhaled Alder, sitting back in his chair. In the still air of the kitchen, smoke drifted in dreamy, wide banks. His mother glared at him skeptically, sympathetically, then lit another cigarette. Chapter 71. Dave's Decision Dave sat on his deck, A deck he had built with the money from one of his companies, he couldn't remember which, and stared out at the setting sun. It was Friday. The rest of his family would be up later tonight. Angela had stayed in town for... Why? Something to do with a real estate course? No, that can't be it. A flock of geese coasted over the pines and swung low over the lake, the water so reflective... It looked like a sky buried in the wet earth. Their wingtips brushed the water, and Dave imagined that sensation briefly. It would be nice, like dipping your fingertips into ice cream on a hot day. Guilt. Where was it in his soul? Perhaps there is no such thing as conscience, but that seems hard to believe. Dave lied for a living. He corrupted the young and stole from the gullible. He had learned some accounting tricks and knew the legal mazes of incorporation and taxation fairly well, had some contacts in the investment world. But really, what value did he really bring to the foundation of his businesses? Dave's answer to that was fairly simple. Without me, there would be no businesses. It really was rather irritating how everyone seemed to miss that essential point. Everyone blames me when things go wrong, but goddammit, don't they crowd and line up for their paychecks when everything is going well. He'd read some email once which listed all of Abraham Lincoln's failures before he became president, 
including a nervous breakdown of some sort which gave Dave some comfort. He had never had any troubles that way. It was good to feel stronger than a great president. He sighed and settled back in his deck chair. This should be more relaxing. He imagined a view of himself from various angles, as if snapping photos for a J. Crew catalog cover. Craggly handsome, silver-haired, casually attired, the business leader relaxes after a long week of conducting media convergence. He narrowed his eyes, wondering if one should look piercingly intelligent while watching a sunset, or if that would look too fake, too self-conscious. If normal Rockwell painted me, it would be businessman with a beer. He liked Rockwell. There was no cynicism in his portraits, unlike Alex Colville, who was always depressing. Everything seemed too meticulous, almost neurotic, frozen, like an obsessive-compulsive late for a plane. David once seen a Colville painting, the name always escaped him, which was of a horse thundering down a dark, curving track towards an oncoming train. The painting had always bothered him deeply. What the hell was it about? Instincts are doomed in the face of industrialization? The horse has delusions of grandeur? You put something on a track which is supposed to run free, it dies? Who knew? But the painting returned to him at times, insistently. Finances also came back to him, as they always did. Dave owed 40000 in back taxes. 3000 to his accountant, 17000 to his lawyer, 20000 on a line of credit, almost 18000 on credit cards, not counting the underground economy Angela had going with her cards. The house was on its second mortgage. The cars were leased. The private school notices had lost the friendly, vaguely British politeness and were threatening to turn his case over to rather less educated people. (sighs) What else? Dave explored his debts with a sick fascination. He owed 1200 to his vet. That felt especially bad, of course, because Sarah had had at one time wanted to be a vet. Every utility bill was right on the border of credibility at the three- to four-month mark. He was three months late on property taxes. People like Dave were a goldmine for those charging interest. They were the foundation of enormous slabs of the modern economy. The shadow between bills and payment is a dark, wet, and earthy patch where great sustenance flows into the mushroom veins of those who profit from procrastination. There is great reward here, but uh, also great risk. The more people are late with their payments, the more money is made from interest until they become infinitely late and never pay at all. Then, alas, great money is lost. Dave hated his debt. Debt was a bottomless monster. He felt he was constantly being mugged. Every time he came home with some money, he had to handed over to nameless entities. It really felt like theft. Paying Visa $1,000 a month seemed a whole lot cheaper than paying 20000 all at once. And one could never really be free of it. After a certain point, there was really no point trying. Dave was self-employed, which meant that he paid his taxes at his own discretion. Money piled in and was spent some of it to service debt. He was not that self-destructive. 
although to be accurate he was. He was too self-destructive to avoid bankruptcy which might actually have helped. He controlled his addiction so it killed him in increments. There was always some great bill that eclipsed any natural inflow of pay. I mean, 40k in taxes? I have to make almost 80 to pay for that. What am I supposed to do? Hunt game for six months to save that up? And the money I withdraw from my, the business to pay my taxes? Well, I pay tax on that too. And there was more. He charged GST at 7%, but rarely repaid it to the government for several years. It was like an instant raise. He owed over $12,000 in GST. There was a few grand in corporate taxes, provincial taxes, taxes on investments... And he had also gone the grey route in declarations, writing off Barbados holidays as consulting ventures, Sunday brunches as business meetings, a home entertainment system as office furniture. Well, shit, I'm so stressed I need to relax. And even if I wanted to pay my taxes tomorrow, I'd need another couple of thousand just to square things up with my accountant. Of course, like all addicts, the solution was not to change his behavior, but his resources. I need another hit like my first million. A bonfire of cash so big and bright it would burn away all this fucking fog. Dave lost himself in contemplation of young nurses cheering the liberating troops of infinite cash. Then shook his head in irritation. Stay on target, Davy B. But this target was always in motion. Despite, or perhaps because of, their conspicuous wealth, the Bugles were part of the Great Golden Depression. They lived hand-to-mouth, consuming enormous amounts of money each month. Ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars after taxes and starting over monthly. As the tides of fortune came in, they spent lavishly paying down their mortgages, paying back taxes and clearing their lines of credit. Then, as a company foundered or a recession hit, they remortgaged, ran up debt again, deferred taxes, and pillaged their retirement savings. This constant financial stress was a blessed distraction, of course, from the emptiness of their inner lives. The constant stress of their situation had the additional benefit of allowing them to view ethics as a luxury they could only intermittently afford. They had all the conscience of a mother grizzly defending her young. Of course, there were costs to be paid. The nervous system can hold out under siege for many, many years, but then it tends to give in all at once. There is little warning, and the consequences are terrible. Distraction, rage, emotional or physical violence, debilitating obsessions, delusions, hypochondria. The body submits, 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 and finally talks back only in the endless scream of full revolt. And by then, almost always... It's too late. The problem of financial insecurity weighs heavy on the shoulders of most upper-middle-class families, especially the women. They tend to shy away from any detailed cross-examinations of their husbands, but submit without complaints to the contracting cycle of the family economy. But uh, it was whispered not least by the ladies who lunched. There is always the possibility of final collapse. It was rare... There were always more contacts to be milked, one more board appointment to cling to. The useless classes tend to protect their own. But sometimes, sometimes, the jackals of reality could not be fended off, and they brought down a family in a string of yelps and a cloud of dust.
a lawsuit, a scandal, a conviction for some white-collar corruption, an implacable enemy, or sometimes abstract capital whipped once too often just lurched suddenly and died. The tax department decided to call in back taxes. An audit occurred. Legal bills fell suddenly at a time when everything else was overextended. And a strange, grim absolute cut off all avenues of escape. Bread costs money. And we have no money. It was rare, but still possible. A vast amount of economic activity is dedicated to allowing people to live off credit, to dim and befog the natural truth of cash. This vanity financing, which allows people to silently consume the future for the sake of conspicuously consuming in the present, is one of the great inventions of modern capitalism. It is the economic equivalent of plastic surgery or the fashion industry. Everyone wants to feel good by looking good or seeming rich. There is, in fact, no external solution to the problem of insecurity, but people desperately want to believe that there is. And there is deep gold in every gap between truth and illusion. Businesses can make money supplying people with what is good for them or what is bad. About 90% of the modern economy, from food to shoes to credit, consists of the latter. This illusion economy is the great economic engine of the modern world, and these families are deep in the echoes of its empty heart. The terror of this kind of lifestyle cannot be overestimated. These people have few careless shrugs. There are night sweats, endless terror, and for those who pay themselves out of their own corporations, a grim reckoning every April when they tot up their income and expenses for the past year and feel the final creeping horror of their madness with money. This is a world of short tempers, deep secrets, senseless savings, no more lattes, and daily promises. It is a world of genial grins and casual appearances hanging from a thread. These financial ecosystems are enormously flexible and can take great body blows without collapsing. There is a certain dependency on timing, of course, but assuming the torpedoes come far enough apart, the ship can almost always be bailed. But, lolling on the deck, Dave knew that his ship was beginning to list beyond recovery. So, when in radical straits, make a radical decision. Value was needed. This company needed some serious pumping. This is a $4 billion market. We get even 5% of it, burn and ship the CDs from the Turks and Caicos Islands, get satellite phones and sink back in our hammocks. He remembered watching Angela playing volleyball a few years before when they were in the British Virgin Islands, her taut muscles and panting competition. There was another girl with an ass like two peaches hung in a bandana. Oh, what a trio we would make. Dave got up, went into the house, and got another beer. Coming through the porch, he banged his forehead into a well-dented overhanging roof beam. He cursed savagely, yanked the beer open, glanced at the bottle top, then sent it spinning into the lake with a snap of his wrist. I have to sell this company. The thought was quite sudden, quite clear. 
The historical million of his late twenties haunted him. That had only come about from selling an asset, not growing a business. The truth was that Dave did not like business that much. He liked money, nice things, but the details, patience, and leadership of nurturing a business never really turned him on. The business cards were nice. He liked handing platinum cards to pretty counter girls at airports and exchanging glances with other people in first class. He liked legroom and watching the miniature metal Zamboni of plastic-wrapped pretzels go past him into coach. Better wine, personalized movies. He liked bypassing lines at rental car counters. He liked smoking cigars in convertibles. He liked hotel porn. On-the-road massages were relaxing and good fantasy fodder. He liked going up to the check-in girls and asking where the really good restaurants were. He liked vying with clients for the bill. He liked being irritated at delays or inconveniences because he was important. And also liked forgiving people for irritating him because he was compassionate. He felt that there was a good lesson in his willed, obvious patience that people might learn something important. It was so much more fun to ride the elevator to the executive level at hotels if there was someone else in the elevator and always a little disappointing if they rode to the same floor. He felt very kindly towards the ancient man in a tux who served coffee in the executive lounge. He liked the grim silence of the other men who read the Orange Wall Street Times or murmured into tiny cell phones hidden in their huge hands. He loved politics, gossip. He liked asking the man who did his shoes at the airport about his family, where he was from, When he left, whether he declared everything he made, the tangy snap of the man's polishing rag was a delight. If we're going to sell this thing, we need to give it a good polish. We need to stuff some big sales in the pipeline. We need to get more U.S. exposure, open up some offices. There is no use for it. I simply cannot survive on salary. On Monday, Dave made some calls and was quickly put in touch with a man named Don Lyons, who ran a holding company called CompuCan. CompuCan owned two other companies, one in educational software and one that had a web-based file-sharing service. They had a short, intense conversation, both speaking in a code that they were only half-conscious of. Mr. Lyons, said Dave heartily, good to speak with you. Thanks for taking the call. You're a busy man. I appreciate that, so I won't waste time for either of us. My name is Dave Bugle. I am the CEO of a world-class environmental company called EMIS Systems, which specializes in providing software solutions to Fortune 500 companies. I would like to talk to you about doing business together for two main reasons. Environmental? asked Don. His voice was slow, rusty, ponderous, like a Soviet-era locomotive. Yes, sir. We've been around for almost a year and... said Don. Dave realized that this was a man who needed to make other people wait and appreciated the trick. Most people wanted to show that they were smart by responding rapidly and talking quickly. Don clearly wanted to give the impression of a great mind considering every possible alternative like a chess computer calculating moves several generations into the future. What did you say your name was? 
Dave Bugle. So, Dave, you say that this is software and the environment. Yes. Cash positive? Absolutely. And a great sales pipeline. We've got, huh. There was a pause, some slightly labored breathing. Why sell? We need some cash to get into the U.S. That's where the real market is. U.S. regulations are more strict than those in Canada, and the regs are enforced, unlike here. And with Sarah, companies have to report emissions publicly. So, we invest. We provide cash. You have the product. Marketing? It's all been done in-house so far. If you have any expertise in that area, yeah. Uh, we might be able to rustle something up along those... <sighs> where, where are you calling from? Toronto. So get your papers and get down here. You know the address? I've got the website. I'm looking at it right now. Tell me this. Dave, said Don, is your company clean? Sorry? Clean. No skeletons in the closet. A lot of companies are just cashing in on the boom. Clean. Yes, I can tell you that. I'm a seasoned entrepreneur. We're in for the long haul. That's good. Well, Mr. Bugle, I've got to tell you we're considering several other companies. Everyone's got a dance card, said Dave. Everyone goes for green. Yes. Yes. Don sounded a little disappointed. Dave understood. If you really want to sell your stock, green is the way to go. It gives a strong veneer of ethics and opens the doors of green funds or institutional investors with a mandate to invest in environmentally friendly companies. Don clearly hoped that Dave was some wide-eyed entrepreneur of 25 who didn't know this. Better luck next time, thought Dave. The deal was concluded quite rapidly. Dave and Terry got significant raises and a couple of hundred thousand shares in CompuCan stock. During the negotiations, and ever mindful of his rather pressing financial situation, Dave managed to get cash for a hundred thousand of his shares up front. The remaining stocks were vested over three years, which meant that they could legally only sell a third each year. CompuCan was listed on the Alberta Stock Exchange, which was akin to a riverbed during a gold rush. There was a great deal of sediment and skullduggery, but one could find the occasional nugget. The ASE was considered a valid way station in the pilgrimage towards the Toronto Stock Exchange, which was the mecca of Canadian capital and investment. This was the holy grail of small companies, because a goodly number of institutional investors were not allowed to invest in companies not on the TSE. 
the criteria for maintaining a high-tech listing on the TSE are quite strict. A minimum of a million freely tradable shares worth at least $10 million, 300 or more public shareholders, each with one or more board lots and full financial disclosure. Now, there are companies on the TSE whose main value is that they have a listing on the TSE. Shortly after Dave sold Emis to CompuCan, CompuCan set its sights on Sansity, an ex-mining company which had held onto just enough shareholder value to retain its listing, and was now actively courting a reverse takeover, wherein a company would do a share swap with some cash to merge with Sansity. The shareholders of Sansity would gain because their company would have some actual income. The shareholders of CompuCan would gain because their stock would now be listed on the TSE. Angela followed all this with great interest. Dave was over the moon. He saw a TSE listing, institutional investors, the stock going to $10, coming out with over $3 million, paying off all his debts with enough to spare to never have to work again. The love of his wife, the envy of his friends, the shining respect of his children, everything would be unassailable. He would never have to answer to anyone ever again. She called a meeting of the ladies who lunched, and after scant debate, they all read the newspapers and knew that a gold rush was underway. They all agreed that it was time to put a little more investment money into the market than they had originally anticipated. For many of them, this would involve taking out loans against assets their husbands had put in their wives' names for tax and exposure reasons, but their resolves were strong. They knew that if they all invested, they would all benefit. They sealed their resolution with a piece of cheesecake each, which is the equivalent of a blood bond for rich wives. That night, Dave and Angela couldn't sleep, flying on the clouds of incoming cash. Buck Deb, Dave whispered, his throat tight with savage joy. Okay, so my son's not going to be a rock star, but we're so close to the TSEA. I can fucking taste it. His voice caught. Thanks. I mean, really, thanks for hanging in there with me when everything seemed to be going in the shitter. That took rare faith. Angela smiled. I have a confession to make. Yeah. About investments. Dave turned and grinned. Do you have your fingers in Davy B's cookie jar? No, because you've been asking a lot about the business. Come on, not even a little. Not me, but you know that caddy lot I lunch with? Dave laughed. <laughs> oh, it's like that. The stitching bitch, the hen party, natter natter. Okay, are they in for a lot? Mm, some are, yeah. Well, as long as it's not you. Are you at least getting some kickback? No, not really. You, my love, are too fucking nice. Why? They're all loaded, right? It's a hobby, you know. What you do after you've run out of chins to tuck. Was it just once? It started as a bit, but now... Dave smiled. Now it's a lot, right? I mean, we got a real infusion. It's given Compican enough cash to maybe get on the TSE. Maybe you did a good thing, sweetums. Maybe we're getting the biggest kickback of all.
You'll tell me when they should sell, right? He reached for her. Of course, my pet, my love, my life, my infinitely fuckable wife. Now, a good deal of the economy is based on the perception of value, and this is one of the great problems of modern morality. Normally, a company gets a TSE listing because it is a solid company. There are, though, companies which manage to scrape together the necessary requirements in order to be perceived as a solid company. This is especially prevalent during times where new technology meets new business models, when everything is in flux, when investor knowledge is at a low ebb, when there is the, uh, everyone is getting rich but me, panic. Ah, then. The fiscal vultures swoop low over the fat, lowing, greedy herds of early retirement wannabes. One of the great problems of the stock market, the ethical problem, is that the stock market is not designed to function in an absence of knowledge. But an explicit application of knowledge is illegal. This is how the stock market is supposed to work. A company has a great product and wants to expand. To expand, it needs money it doesn't have. Dave's argument was that Emis could sell a lot more software if it had offices in the U.S. and more salespeople. However, it did not have the money to fund that kind of expansion. Now, it could choose to expand by spending the money it makes from its existing products, but that doesn't tend to work very well because profits tend to be in the 4 to 10% range and it can take a long time to save enough money from that kind of margin. So if a company needs money, why doesn't it go to a bank? Well, if the company is 99% sure that it will make a lot of money by expanding, it probably will go to a bank. The bank will review the company's claims rigorously and assign an interest rate based on how accurate they think the projections are. Going to the bank benefits existing shareholders because they don't have to issue more shares, thus diluting their old holdings to raise the money. The risk of going to the bank is that the money has to be paid back, and usually more quickly, or the bank ends up owning the business. The bank really doesn't screw around. If you think about it, a bank makes maybe 1-2% on a loan, thus for every loan which defaults there have to be uh, 50 to 100 which are paid back in full. Banks, in other words, are not designed to underwrite risk. So if the expansion is risky, then the company has to go to the stock market. This is where information comes in. Dave's pitch to potential investors in the CompuCan San City merger went thusly. Emus has grown 40% every year since its inception. Companies currently considering the Emus system include Bombardier, Bell, General Mills, Nortel, and about 30 others, all Fortune 500 clients, all committed to environmental responsibility. It is estimated that a commitment to green policies contributes 4 to 6% to a company's share price, and in the face of that kind of market capitalization, an investment in Emus doesn't even show up on the radar. The market for environmental software products and services has been estimated as upwards of 4 billion US dollars per year worldwide. With that kind of money on the table, you'd think that there would be a stampede of companies rushing to fill that need, yet there isn't. Our competition consists of one company in Maine who is currently attempting to upgrade their EMIS product from DOS to Windows, and a few consulting companies with trumped-up little databases designed more to sell consulting services than run departments. So why is this lucrative market so underpopulated? The simple reason is that providing a strong EMIS solution requires an intersection of skills, which is very rare in the software world. If you think of an accounting program, it requires skills in both accounting and software to create a best-of-breed product. 
This is the barrier to entry in the EMIS marketplace as well. The algorithms to calculate air emissions, say, require a very strong engineering, legal, and chemical background. To translate these algorithms into an effective and user-friendly software package requires strong interface design and coding skills. Most of the people in the EMIS market are either engineers who don't know how to program or design interfaces, or programmers who create fluff software which doesn't do the core processing needed by the engineers. EMIS is the answer to that problem. Remember, corporations in the U.S. have to file reports to the federal government about all their wastes, air, land, water, everything. It's about as voluntary as doing your taxes. So companies have to produce these reports. The question is, do they do it by hand or through software? I think the answer is clear. So the question is not whether EMIS can sell software, but rather how much. Now, the U.S. regulations are much stricter than the Canadian regs, so I submit that it is essential to expand into the U.S. market. And to do this, we need capital. Specifically, we need your capital. Let me sum up the salient points. 1. EMIS has a proven product already in use at several client sites. 2. The market potential is enormous, especially in the U.S., which means juicy conversion rates, U.S. receivables, largely Canadian payrolls. 3. Client demand is governed by strict laws. 4. The cost of getting into the U.S. market is quite low relative to the projected profits. So now the only question is, did you gentlemen bring your checkbooks? This was a fairly big finish. Dave was nothing if not a showman. And there would often be spontaneous applause after his presentation. Large checks were written. Many toasts were made. Everyone was brilliant, special, and courageous. The inevitable devils readied their vanity tags.